0: Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Did you see him being a world number one, a Grand Slam champion?
1: No chance. Okay, I mean I didn't know anything. I was a complete rookie. You okay. know, I was coach. Yeah, I was. Co- I was coaching him. I was coaching Marty Fish, but I had no luxury of comparing them to anything because it was my first go around. So what? Yeah. Welcome
0: to episode 148 of Controller Controllables. And the one thing I love about this guest is it makes us mere mortals feel a little bit better about ourselves that he was coaching a future world number one. Yeah, he said he was a rookie. And that guest is Stanford Evans Boster. Stan has a, an amazing story. Comes from South Africa moved over to America at, a, at an early stage in his coaching career and he went on, he coached Andy Roddick he coached Marty Fish he coached David Martin, Bradley Klan he has been a big part of the USTA or was up until fairly recently where he was responsible alongside other coaches for the likes of Stefan Kozlov, Taylor Fritz Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, Francis Tiafo. You know, a real golden generation that has come through the federation out in the USA. And Stan was a massive, massive part in that. And now he's running his own independent tennis coaching setup. And one of the players he's working with made the final of junior Wimbledon last year. Stan brings many stories a lot of great insights. He's he's truly honest with the way that he speaks and he's going to be an, a fantastic guest for you to listen to. But before we do move over to Stan and start off the episode, I just want to dedicate this podcast to Freddie Nielsen who has announced his retirement from professional tennis today. Freddie's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of the podcasts, and he's brought many special memories to us. and And I have to say, he was him and Johnny Murray were the inspiration behind control the controllables. If we go back all of those months when we wanted to bring their amazing 2012 Wimbledon title story to you, so thank you, Freddie. Thanks for being. A good partner over the years, a good friend and someone who's inspired us, but also a great guest on the podcast and someone who we hope to have with us next week with the Australian Open Review. Uh, I'm sure that Stan will do you proud with this episode. I'm going to pass you over to Stanford Evans Boster. So Stanford Evans Boster, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. And, and as, I, as I give that name out, and then I hear the South African accent, they, they don't go together, Stan. So what what's with the American name and the South African accent?
1: Yeah, uh get asked that all the time. You know, obviously living in America now, uh, so it goes hand in hand with an American name, uh, living in the country. But yeah, basically my mom, uh, who's South African, came to uh, America and lived here for, I think about 16 years and uh, married my dad who was, uh, was American and I was conceived in America, but he actually died before I was born. So uh, she went back to South Africa and I was born there. And that's, you know, lived there for 20, 24 years and then made my way back to the States, yeah, I think in 1994, um, didn't think I'd be here I mean, that's like, how many years is that? That's, uh, goodness gracious, 26, 27 years I've been here now. And it's if somebody said that to me in 1994, I'd be here 27 years later. I was like, no chance, especially not coaching. That, that's <laughs> Yeah, the coaching is the funny part. Because, you know, you started coaching and I got into it by total fluke. Uh, everybody said, like, well, how did you, you know, how did this whole thing happen? It's like, well, I didn't know what to do with my life. I'd uh, gotten a a commerce degree uh, in South Africa. And uh, when I finished my degree, I just like, well, what now? And uh, I happened to have a baby passport, an American baby passport, which expired, I think, when I was like four years old. And I went to the embassy uh, in Cape Town and uh, basically said to them, so I got this baby passport, expired when I was four. Uh, What can I get for it? And I said, oh well, just you know, give us the equivalent of 10 bucks at that stage and wait half an hour. And next thing you know, I have an American passport, social oh, security wow. number. Yeah, that's pretty cool actually. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just just bought a bought an airline ticket two days later uh, with about 250 bucks in my pocket. Had no idea. Um, I, I mean I was I was gonna land in DC. I had no idea where I was going, what I was going to do. And uh yeah, just got on a plane and told my my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, um, you know, I was, I'm going to America, don't know what I'm gonna do, don't know where I'm going. And uh yeah, we basically had this arrangement where uh like I wasn't gonna look for anybody and she wasn't gonna look for anybody. And if it all worked out, you know, it worked out. So we uh, yeah, 27 years later, we're still together amazing what what a great story to start us off
0: stan and it's and 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 with that i guess the question in my head is why why america what was what was it about america was it because of of your past you know and and from your mom and from your dad who you'd unfortunately never met you know what what was dragging you towards just going
1: and trying your hand in america yeah i mean <sighs> As I said, like, if you'd have told me I'd be here 27 years later, I'm like, there's no way. I mean, I'm South African. I love my rugby. I played rugby. Um, it was just, I think, I didn't even appreciate. Now I really appreciate America. But it took me about 10 years to appreciate it. Like, I live in Florida. It's the tropics. It's paradise. I didn't even go to the beach for the first five years that I was in Florida. And now I'm at the beach whenever I can, pretty much every second day. So, I didn't really have an appreciation for it. And I really just stumbled onto the whole coaching thing. Why America of any other place in the world? I did have a feeling that South Africa was, you know, there's a there was change, of, change of regime. I had a feeling that it might go like the rest of Africa, you know, sadly, you know, you don't want to be, that's not something you want to be right on. But unfortunately, you know, South Africa has, Has gone downhill. I mean, it's still a great country to live in. Uh, You have to have a lot of money. It's not very safe. I mean, the crime is high. And looking back now, uh, my wife and I were like, wow, (laughs) we're pretty fortunate to get out, but we never really got out. It wasn't a conscious decision. It's just like, well, we have a feeling it might go bad. I've got this passport. Let's go and explore the world a little bit. Got, Got to America. And actually went back to South Africa in 1995 uh, because the Rugby World Cup was on. And I'm, I'm a huge rugby fan. And then wasn't going to come back, actually, to, um, to America. But then I got a phone call from John Ebbett, Chris Ebbett, the brother, in 96, saying, uh, well, I'm starting an academy. They actually took over. Do you remember Robert Seguso, the Devils player? Well, yeah. I have, a,
0: I'll have to jump in a little bit here, Stan, because... In 19, oh, I want to say 93, I won a big, um, the Daily Telegraph in the UK, or the Sunday Telegraph, yeah. ran a big competition. You had to write in and say why you would w- were, were the person to win to win a, a, a month, I believe it was, at this new academy in Boca Raton, so Gusso Bassett. So I, I applied for that. I remember writing something down, you know, whatever my story was at that time, and then went down for this big day down in London. I was picked yeah. into the last, let's say, 60 boys, 60 girls. And my dad had to persuade me to stay to hear the selection. Like I it didn't cross my mind I was going to be selected. And my name got called out, much to my, my surprise. And the next thing I knew, a couple of couple of weeks later, I was on a plane, no way, out to Florida to spend to spend a month. Me and a girl, Helen Richardson, we we spent yeah. we ended up spending a full month at at Suguso Bassett. Um, no in, way. In probably one of its first ever weeks. Yeah. Um, and they they actually offered me a bit of a scholarship to go back after that, but I also at the same time the LTA had come in and offered Mm -hmm. and offered me to go to the national tennis school. And I absolutely loved my time there. Loved it. Uh, it was all very new. You know, the buildings were very new, all of those things. Yeah, yeah,
1: brand new. So our
0: so our timelines nearly crossed.
1: That's crazy. So you remember Nick Crowther? Because he was another clip that was there. Yes, very well.
0: No, Uh, Nick, no Nick very well.
1: No, that boy could play. Yeah, he he could. Yeah, so it's crazy. So I landed up, basically, when I landed in D.C. in, two, in April 1994, I had no idea what I was going to do. So I actually picked up the back of a tennis magazine, crazy, and looked for jobs. <laughs> and Stiglis Bassett, you know, was kind of, I saw you know, an advertisement or whatever, and maybe not looking for jobs, but like this new academy out in Boca Raton, Florida. Of course, I didn't even have a clue where Boca Raton, Florida was. Geographically, no idea of the size of the U.S., I come from a little South Africa. I mean, obviously, I'm pretty educated, but not a good education, but geographically, no concept. So I landed in D.C. with 250 bucks in my pocket, and uh, I had a look at the price of hotels. I'm like, okay, I'm good for one night. <laughs> <And> after that, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. So it's kind of crazy. So I, I, uh, it, it, I took uh, a whole bunch of telephone numbers of guys that, friends of friends but i didn't know them and i called this one guy and i said listen mate you don't know me at all but we have mutual friends in south africa and i'm in a bit of trouble so i've got about enough money for one night to stay here and uh yeah do you have a place where to sleep it was pretty cool he was a zimbabwean guy all the guys supreme court judge actually kicked out of zimbabwe uh by robert mugabe when that whole thing changed oh, okay. yeah pretty cool and um, i slept on the floor for three or four days and uh i Picked up this tennis magazine and I called the to with you, And Do you remember Greg Holder, the Canadian Davis Cup player?
0: I've heard that name. Definitely heard so that name.
1: He was the Academy director when you would have been there, I think. And I called, and I called this guy, Greg. And, uh, and, you know, he goes, well, have you coached before? And I'm like, no, not really, not much. And I play a little bit. He goes, well, and then he asked me, do you know a guy called John Ewell? John Ewell is a very good tennis player, a very good coach in South Africa. And I said, no, I don't know John, but I, I've played against a lot of the guys he's coached. He goes, oh, that's good enough. you got the job. And I'm like, okay. And then I said to him, once again, geographically, no idea where, where I am. So I said to him, uh, so can I take a cab down there? Or like, how long would that take? And he goes, uh, no, you cannot take a cab from Washington, <laughs> D.C. to Boca Raton. For a... Your so, 250
0: uh, bucks have definitely gone now. At this yeah. point.
1: <laughs> so I spent 170 of that. Took a one-way ticket down to Fort Lauderdale and uh got picked up in the academy van and the deal was 200 bucks a week uh you would coach for us in the morning in the afternoon you could still play a little bit not that i was ever trying to be a player but you know i didn't know what to do and yeah food and food and lodging and that was it that's where i started and actually got into the whole coaching thing and i was like wow it's just you know i really enjoy it i really enjoy kind of trying to make a difference with the kids even though i never really coached before didn't really have an idea but I guess the one thing in, in our industry that you cannot bluff is passion yeah. you, when, you're, when you're passionate about it. And then the kids pick it up and then it's easy. You know, and then they're very easy to influence them. So anyway, we backtrack there a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, I had no interest in going back really. But my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, uh, said to me, "He's like, we're definitely going back. I think, you know, once again, she she saw the riding on the wall in South Africa and she wanted to go as some options. So that was it. Got back on a plane, flew back to Ebbets, and, uh, yeah, started running the high-performance program, with, although I'm not really a high-performance coach at that stage. I'm just a coach that's passionate, that kind of brings, uh, you know, brings kind of like old-school rugby training, mentality, discipline, and all of those things to... Um, to, to, to the training and uh, you know it's crazy because when I played in South Africa and I wasn't a good player not, not like you guys but I mean I'd never done cross court forehands in my life before I'd go to the tennis club and we'd warm up play many tennis for 45 minutes and then go play sets you know I, mean, I ended up being decent in South Africa decent junior and stuff like that but I mean one and ones cross courts down the line two and ones you're joking like, I don't know how it was so a lot of my initial coaching was just like putting kids in scenarios, uh, playing situations, and then trying to help them become better competitors. And yeah, now I look at the way I train people is very different from the way I trained them back then because I really didn't know. You've seen cross-courts done. You've seen cross-court down the line. You've done all the controls. Yeah, controls are vital. But yeah, it's stuff that I figured out on the way. But definitely I uh, would not have considered myself a high-performance coach even though
0: I was given that position. Um, I'm smiling, Stan, because it's, it's, there's so much in this world that people think that they've got to, they've got to plan out X, Y, and Z. They've got to do this, 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 and that before they're, before they're um, given certain positions. But, but just hearing your story, and, and I think it's quite a, it's quite a consistent story in some ways, when you see people that are successful in this sport, that they're giving their time for next to nothing to get to the next level, you know, and being able to put themselves in a position where actually we almost don't see the failure in it. It's just like, no, no, no I, that's, I want to give this a bit of a go. I am extremely passionate. I'm going to throw myself at it. Yeah. And, and it's amazing then what doors can then open and 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 I think there's just so many people that maybe don't think that certain things in this sport are possible, you know, when they are, <laughs> you know, yeah. they, they 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 really are. So I think your story is unbelievably inspirational, and 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 I hope that people listening can can take okay. from it what I'm what I'm sure they will. But the one one of my things, and you've touched on it there, Stan, but as you were talking, I was thinking right, but. What because when I've looked up and I've not I've been lucky enough to I think I met you for the first time maybe back in two thousand and twelve potentially uh traveling with actually some actually
1: no actually before. I'll tell you where cor- now correct me yeah, I, my memory I, I'm definitely getting a little older, there but I'm pretty sure you were playing when you were still playing you played in Jamaica a couple of futures in two thousand three yes. or two thousand four yes yes and you played one of my guys it was either Luca Gregors or Robert Haberl you Played yes. one
0: of them okay, the, so we
1: and you were, you were chopping them up, but then the Jamaican Heat got the better of you and <laughs> things that didn't work out so well. But you were while you were getting, you know, until the Jamaican Heat kicked in, you were chopping them up. That I do remember. So well, that I'll was ta- about 2003, 2000, okay. 2004.
0: So, that's right,
1: somewhere around there.
0: I was there with Mr. Sherwood. Miss me and Mr. Sherwood were winning all the doubles events there, and he was. He was sat on his balcony, smoking a cigarette, and I would then look up at the balcony and saying, "Come on, Dave, we're, we we've got our match to play now." And he he would come out and, ironically, he was he never he never struggled in the heat in Jamaica, whereas yeah. I was I was the one in the gym trying to get myself in good shape, and I struggled. So it's an ironic story. One of the things I never knew about you, Stan, was you be well. I didn't know that story how you started coaching, which I think is amazing. But before we go more into your coaching, because when people then hear who you've coached and what you've achieved as a coach, when that's where you started, it really is an incredible story. But I never knew about your playing bit and I know you've downplayed it there, but how did you get started in tennis back in South Africa? Was it, was it something you did to a, a national level, a regional level, an international level? How far did your tennis go and how did that start?
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, just being at the tennis club, like I think how all, a lot of kids start with their parents. You know, my mom, my mom played tennis. And I think the tennis clubs in South Africa, almost like, like a Europe thing, they kind of raise you. You know, you the, go there with your mom, they drop you off. I mean, in the morning and you're hitting against the wall and then you're getting hitting against the 85-year-old guys and yep. you're, you're safe. It's a safe environment and you're just playing sport. It's a very healthy environment. And that was it, you know. And I, we we had no money, so uh, no lessons. Uh, so basically, the wall became my coach and watching television became my coach. Um, yeah, I ended up being, you know, when I say decent, uh, I got to, I think, numbers evasion eventually six in the country in juniors. Okay. And then, you know, in our little... In our little Mickey Mouse pro, uh, you know, domestic pro money tournaments type thing, I think I ended up maybe about 12. You know, a lot of the guys, the era that I grew up with, this is the, the pretty cool part, is that the age group just before me, the year younger than me and the year older than me, that is Wayne Ferreira, Marcus Andruska, Grant Stafford, David Mankin. The doubles players were a joke. That was Maurice Barnard, who you know, lived in England. Pete Norval, Elliott, um, Chris Haggard. I mean, it was an incredible generation. And I never beat any of those guys. Um, they, they were much better than me. Um, but this is the era you grew up with. And actually, I think that growing up in that era, you didn't I ne- as I said, I never considered myself good. But those are the guys you were playing with. And you, you sometimes you, I would play them tight. Um, as I said, I'd never beat any of them in singles. But the level was decent because they were decent, you know. And the results ended up speaking for themselves with a lot of these guys going and actually making careers, especially from the doubles perspective. And then we, you know, I would say that's the extent of my my, my tennis playing in South Africa. Um, I actually played professional rugby. Well, professional. I played for a university called uh, Stellenbosch University, which is called Marty's. So this rugby university in South Africa, it's the biggest rugby club in the world, and nope and pretty much wherever you if you play for this rugby club and you're up in the first team or the second team there's a 99 percent chance you'll play for the stormers western province and there's a about a 50 percent chance you'll play for the springboks okay. like, yeah so very very strong i went there on a, I mean a, a tennis scholarship it was mickey mouse money um but when i got there they had this it's called a first-year tournament where it's a, all the freshmen don't play rugby. And I happened to be in a team that was pretty good, that made me look good. And the next thing you know, the club had said, well, uh, we'll give you the rugby scholarship instead of the tennis scholarship. So that was that was pretty funny because pretty much then for four years, I didn't play any tennis. That was just rugby. And I ended up playing for them and uh, – yeah, a lot of the guys that I played with, uh, uh, were well, actually a couple of the guys that
0: I played with uh, were part of that 1995 uh, Rugby World Cup team and actually won. Right. It, uh, Stella- Stellenbosch is, uh, is a beautiful place. I was, very, I was very lucky to go. I went there for a couple of ITF Junior events mm-hmm. four or five years ago. And that yeah. was absolutely stunning, stunning campus, beautiful place to, to go to university, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, I know. It was amazing. I mean, my degree took me five years. The degree is supposed to take three years, um, and that's all because playing rugby and a couple of my teammates also happened to own wine farms, so I think I spent more time in the wine <laughs> <laughs> I think I spent more time in the wine cellars than I actually did in class. <laughs> so uh, I think that's why the degree took a little bit longer. It wasn't five years; it was four and a half years, but oh. it's supposed to take three. So uh, yeah, one of the famous wine farms is Winston Fredda, and yep. that guy, uh, his dad was a Springbok uh, coach, and anyway, we played together for much rugby. And and another one is uh, was called Blaauwklippen. So yeah, two of my buddies own wine farms. So you do what you do. You go and learn to uh, appreciate some of the the good Reds in the, in the Santa area, as I'm sure you did.
0: It's a good university life to have, and yeah. all and all of that experience, Stan, just to bring you back is now you, you're now head of high performance program at the at the Ever. I didn't realize that it Saguso Bassett was so short in its name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. you know, so Ever obviously took over pretty quickly. Mm. And then it can't have been long before then you started working with the likes of Andy Roddick and Marty Fish.
1: Yeah, so I basically started there in April 96 and um, went back to South Africa uh, for a little three-week vacation in December. And when I got back, uh, John Abbott had said, he's like, listen, I've got this kid, um, Andy Roddick, is a pretty good 14-year-old. Uh, I want you to take him privately um, every morning before the, the program hour. So I think we would go pretty much like six 30 to eight or, you know, whatever. and then he would actually go to school and then he'd come to the, the program in the afternoon. And uh, I mean, I'd heard of this kid and I actually seen him play Fourteens nationals in Fort Lauderdale the year before, you know, just a very confident kid. He small, you know, not, not a big, big boy, but, you know, his brother was actually very good. John Roddick was actually very good. And, Uh, I mean, Andy was just a great competitor. So anyway, yeah, this is how our paths crossed. And uh, John's like, take him in the mornings. And uh, we started this thing and uh, let's call it February 97. I started with him and then it got to uh, US Open 97. And I actually got fired from uh, Everts because it was a bit of a, I had, Three other girls who were top ten in the world, ITF, There were Tracy Sinjin, Lauren Calvaria, and Erin Beauclair. And I was coaching uh, a- a- Andy, and uh, I was supposed to go to the U.S. Open. And uh, John and I are, are friends now; we get along. You know, we wash that aside. But this is the reality of what happened. Is our basically our top program was ridiculously good. We dominated Kalamazoo. We had I had a whole bunch of South Africans that I brought in working for us. For the likes of Jason Schur, who uh, was also a very good South African player, went to UCLA, and um, I think we had about six South African coaches because they pretty much worked for free. <laughs> a, a good and, and good work ethic, you know. So one of the things that happened is that our top program was phenomenal, but everything below that it was a little subpar. And uh, I, I one of the biggest things about me is that I'm almost I'm too honest, and I get into trouble for that. And the parents would come to me and say, well, you know, uh, we see what's going on at the top. It's great. But down below, it's looking pretty shabby. And I'd say, you know what? I, I don't know what to tell you. You're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's not great. Uh, you know, we are going to look to improve it and stuff like that, but it's not great. Anyway, I didn't end up going to the US Open with my players uh, because John wanted to go with them and needed to be there. Anyway, word got back to a guy called Bob Kane, who at that stage was running IMG. That I wasn't maybe supportive of the program. So when I got back, I, uh, yeah, I was handed my marching orders. And here's the funny part. And I joked with John about this, uh, John Emmett about it now, but he's like, listen, we're going to have to let you go. It looks like you don't really believe in the program per se. And you can take Roddick with you because he's never going to amount to anything like Taylor Dent. Because <laughs> 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 at that stage, Taylor Dent was dominating US junior tennis. Yeah. And, and, uh, and it was classic. I, I can't tell you how many times I actually used that to motivate Andy when he was losing a match. Like we yeah. we would be in Panama, and uh, he'd uh, he'd won this. It was a Grade Three he won in Costa Rica. We were in Panama, and uh, he was uh, losing to this uh, Turkish guy who's actually I uh, we're, we're friends now on so on, on Facebook because I have no Instagram and no uh, Twitter. And no Facebook is the only social media i have but i only have friends and family on there it's like nobody on there that i don't know pretty well so and he played this turkish guy and this turkish guy like was was way bigger than andy and the night before it was quite funny because i was in the pool and this turkish guy and and, uh, and his coach were talking they were talking about playing roddick and they're like yeah man you've got way too much firepower for this little kid and all these things i'm like all right okay we'll see how it works out anyway andy it does end up losing the first set and I and I shout over to him, I'm like, hey mate, just remember, you're never gonna be Taylor dead, you know, <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> Man, it's 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 all it took. And he just he turns it on and then he goes and beats his guy in the heat, and then ends up losing in the final to a guy called who was a lot older than him. But yeah, I used that uh, I used that weaponry a lot. Uh because yeah. he was small, you know, he, he ended up growing even when we parted ways like two and three quarter years later, which was about Probably about three weeks before the U.S. Open in 1999 is when we parted. He was he was little, you know, and then then he grew up and he grew and he had some big tools. And I actually remember him playing Lee Childs in the opening round of uh, Orange Bowl that year, 99. And Lee had drummed him in there. Remember that Queens Invitational they had the 16 juniors? Yeah, year, well, year? I you, remember you it.
0: I, I well, I actually I went to watch that year because I was I was living with Lee. Okay. And and James Nelson at the, yeah. at the National yeah. Tennis School, so we went to watch because Andy and Marty were playing in that event. So I, I don't, correct. I don't remember. I but I saw one of them. I think beat Andy.
1: I, well, I think Lee beat him, and uh, I think Barker's uh, Barkley was coaching all the boys at that yes. stage. Man, these are such good times. But yeah, yeah, anyway, so I think I think Lee drummed the other. I can't Remember who beat Marty. Marty, I think Marty won maybe two matches, but Andy definitely lost to lead. And then Andy destroyed him in the opening round of uh of Orange Ball. Different player, you know, changed records, babylots. Yeah, no, still but but um yeah, yeah, he got big in <laughs> like three months.
0: Did you see him being a world number one, a grand Slam champion?
1: No chance. Okay. No I mean, I didn't know anything. I was a complete rookie. You okay. know, I was yeah. coached. Yeah, I was co- I was coaching him. I was coaching Marty Fish. I mean, the one thing I always bring to the table is work ethic, but I have no experience. I mean, if you ask me that now, even now, if I look back, okay, I can see some traits, possibly. Um, I have a kid right now that's 17 years old. That's very good. He's three in the world in juniors, and he played Indian Wells Qualies this year. Now I can identify it. I look at yeah. this kid and I'm like, man, this kid can do things at 17 years old that those guys couldn't do. Yeah. But I have the luxury of comparing it. But I had no luxury of comparing them to anything because it was my first go around. So no. I mean, and, and, and Airboys, it, it, I think for anybody to ever say, I mean, a guy like Roger Federer, maybe if you see that, you're like, the, you know, okay, yeah, you know he's going to be good. 20 grand yeah. stands deep. I don't think anybody ever knows that type of stuff. But no, there's no chance that I that I knew Andy was going to be number one. Uh, there's no chance. I thought I'd have two guys top ten. I mean, Marty got to six, six or seven.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, back end of the career. Uh, you no, know, no way. Yeah, you know, I think you'd be a brave man to to call out anybody that's going to. You could say top ten, number one, Grand Slam champion. That's yeah, a different. But yeah, there. but
0: di- but but that's what I mean. Did you see him as a? Did you see him having a pro career where oh, – yeah. him- yeah, you saw that he was—he was that good.
1: Well, in my um, in my naivety and my ignorance, yes. Yeah. What was I basing that on? Basing it on just like what I saw him do. It's like we had uh, actually straight after that Queen's Invitational, there was a tournament in um, Winston Salem, and it was a uh, it was an exhibition, and it was guys like uh, Todd Martin, Alex O'Brien. Seastore Mamet, Paul Goldstein, and then there were two juniors invited. And those two juniors were Marty and Andy. And uh, Andy was drawn against Paul Goldstein and lost in three sets. can't remember the exact score, but, you know, four in the third or something. And Goldie was like 60 in the world. And Andy was still 16 years old. And that made me realize that. And I know it was an exhibition, but it was a big money exhibition. I think the first round was like 10 Gs or something if you want it. So I was like, hmm, okay. Uh, and then and then Marty actually beat Cecil Mammoth. And Cecil was also 60, 50, 60 in the world. So it was only then that I realized, like, oh, okay, hang on. These guys can actually play. <laughs> like, at a decent level outside of juniors. Because, I mean, be, before that, in that year, it was kind of tough because in 19... 19- it was rough with andy and i because in april 99 he got injured and he hurt his back and i had a group and it was you know it was maury fish it was david martin you remember david Martin? yes lefty, yep. yeah very very good player i had chris martin his brother i had bo hodge also a very good player yeah and we had a, we had a schedule to go to asia but andy couldn't go because his back was hurt and this is kind of where things started going a little awry because you know, the other guys kept winning and performing and Andy couldn't really play. And eventually he came over for one week for the Philippines. That uh, was pretty average. And then his first comeback tournament was actually the French Open. And who does he draw? Yarko Niemann. He's, you know, I mean, Yarko, good damn player. Yeah. And Andy, you know, for an American on clay, Yarko, that, that wasn't a good draw. Um, and then we went to Wimbledon, and he, <laughs> he beat... You have Wayne Wong from Hong Kong. I remember mm. that. And then he lost to a British wild card, and which is, in my mind is never a shock because the Brits know how to play on grass. And whenever you draw one of those uh, guys on grass, it's dangerous. Like this year, I had two of my guys draw British wild cards. And I'm like, boys, take this more seriously than anybody that's in the top five because these mm. guys grow up on this stuff. So this is where it was he got injured and I wasn't able to spend as much time with him. And then slowly but surely got to Kalamazoo and he actually lost to David Martin, I think in the quarters, maybe. And then his mom said to me, listen, we need you to go back one-on-one with Andy. And I'm like, well, how do I do that? How do I walk away from, you know, three, four guys? So that was, that was August 1999. And that, that's where that came to an end.
0: There's so many, there's so many directions I'd love to go. Cause I think it's like, it, people want to know about successful developmental stories, and but but I think I think the one thing that hits me and one of my my theories, untested, you know, it's just a feeling that I get, is the young naivety that you showed potentially led to you giving a stronger belief. To those youngsters, the, to you know, so so if we take Andy and Marty yeah. as the as the two that went on to have the highest ranking, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: sometimes, uh, and and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Once you've been through the journey a few times, you're maybe a little less enthusiastic with youngsters because it's like, well, we've been there, done it. Many players don't make it, you know, and 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 subconsciously maybe don't give as much enthusiasm and as much belief into into the players. You know, I I just wonder what your reflection is now, kind of 20 years on, you know, do you think almost that naivety you had worked in the favour of those boys in terms of what you installed in them?
1: I think the naivety worked, this is a two-prong answer. Um, I'm going to go to the second part first. I'm more passionate about what I do now than than what I was when I started 27 years ago. I mean, when you and I are done here, about this 17-year-old kid that you know, we're going to go hit serves. It's on a Sunday. He's seven days a week. We're just going to go hit serves. And then you know, I've got one of my guys. I'm preparing for a futures, and I think I don't think I've had a day off since uh, maybe November. I took Christmas day off, but November maybe second that was the last day off I had, because to me it's really not a it's not a started job. And I actually said the other days I had a parent asking me about, you know, how do I keep going and doing it like this? I said, it's very simple. I said, because if they fail, I fail. And I know it sounds cliche, you know, but I'm not interested in failing. I'm not, I hate losing in whatever I do. So I want to make sure that these guys, um, I want to, I don't want, I don't want to be the reason that they don't make it. You know, I, I think, what is that? Is that pride? I don't know if it's pride, but it's definitely a motivating factor. I don't know how much longer I'll do it because the body's definitely getting broken up, but the passion that's greater now than it actually ever was. Because especially now, I look at like this one kid I've got now, and I'm like, Jesus, this kid, this kid's got it. You know, he's really, really got it. So, no, it's really exciting. But the naivety to get back to the second part of the question. That is actually what, why I think I was made, I was able to get a little bit of success. And I'll give you a classic classic example. I didn't really know how to go about it, so I thought to myself, "Well, I've got to get on the road. That's I've got to get on the road and go to international events, and I'm going to watch coaches. I'm going to watch international coaches, and I'm going to watch the levels, because in America already then I felt the levels were dropping. Like not that I really knew, but I just like." My guys were winning, They winning nationals per se, and they, they're already at the top there. So, I mean, what's the point? Let, let's get out. And I, I remember going down to a grade four in Porto Alegre in Brazil, which is now a grade A, an incredible tournament. And there was an exhibition, and you'll remember these names. You remember Mateus Hellstrom, yep. the Swedish guy, number one in the world? And he was playing an exhibition against Marcus Daniel. Now, not the, not the Kiwi Marcus Daniel. This is Marcus Daniel, the Brazilian tennis yes, player. Yes,
0: yeah, I remember him as well, yeah.
1: And I was sitting there with Andy and I was watching this tennis. And Dan, I was like, oh, my God, how am I ever <laughs> – That's quite funny. How, how am I ever going to get him to play like these guys? That was my thought. And so this is, my naivety is what actually made me decent because I'd looked at what they were doing. And I also saw the way the game was going. At this stage, now you had the guys coming through, everybody dominating with forehands. But that wasn't the same thing five years before that. You know, it was like like a V-lander putting balls in court, you know, serve and volley before that. Then I noticed like the Moyers, you know, Bereseteges, um, those guys coming through and like dominating with a forehand and I'm like, this is the way the game's going for sure that and the, that and the serve. So that was my own take on it. and all my players for the most part, you know Marty's forehand is always a little suspect, but it, you know it's still been great you figure out how to manage it. But to me obviously the serve and the forehand are two big things. So that I saw that that by watching the game, but then just honestly throwing the guys in the deep end. Like if I was at a tournament and I saw the number one seed, I just go up to the guy I'm like, hey, man, you want to practice with this kid? He's not your level, but you want to practice? And funny enough, then the guys would actually step up. So I'm like, yeah. oh, actually, <laughs> maybe he is the level. I don't know. Because I didn't know. So I just kept, I always threw them in the deep end. I And we spent a lot of time on the road. And actually to the point where I know that Andy at one stage got really burned out of the road but it was going to be baptism by fire. And this is how I was going to learn this. I wasn't going to learn, you know, on on a training course. And this is the part that you and I talked about earlier. To me, it's the process that if you, I honestly don't think making a top 100 player is difficult. I actually think it's extremely easy. And a lot of people go, Jesus, that's a big call. I'm like, no, well, I've had like seven guys that I've taken you know, developed to the top 100 and maybe another 20 that are between 100 and 150. Is that because they're just that good? No, no, because it's actually not that hard. You do need the right person. You need the right horse. You need the guy that wants to put in the work and wants to compete. Yes, you need those. But if you've got those things, it's actually not that difficult. The difficult part comes in... Finding somebody that's prepared to go through the trenches with you, you know, be in, God knows, Bangladesh for four weeks as <laughs> you try to build the junior ITF rankings so you can go into the next level. Or, you know, I once went on the road for three months um, without seeing my wife. Uh, you, you've got to have the coach that's prepared to do that. It's if you don't have that, that you have very little chance. So we I mean, know tennis is a very expensive sport. Um, so you know you've got to have the financial ability to afford the coach to go on the road because traveling at, tra- you know, training at home, that's inexpensive. That's not that expensive. It's the traveling abroad or well, you know traveling that really kills you, you know, from the expense perspective. So if you have the, um, the financial means and you actually have a coach that's prepared to live and die with you, and, and, and once again, I think coaching in my mind, honestly is overrated, Dan. It is so overrated. But passion and knowing, I would say, how to pick a guy up when he's just got his butt beat in flipping India and you've got food poisoning and, you know, you can't practice because there's one practice court and pretty much everything sucks. How do you pick him up? How do you keep yourself motivated? Um, This is what makes players. Like, I've never really seen anybody that didn't make it that didn't give up. The guys that, that, that stay the course, they make it. I mean, you look at guys like Victor Estrella, you know, 28, 29, 30 years old, breaking top 100. If you really want to do this, the, the age thing is just a number. I mean, obviously, you've got to have some sort of skill. You know, you can't be a complete muppet and expect to be top 100. But if you've got the work ethic and you've got a little bit of physicality, you know, you're a little bit of a decent athlete and you've got a coach in your corner, that's prepared to go through this process. It knows the steps. I think knowing the steps is important because uh, I think a lot of guys and when they turn to develop players, they miss steps and this is where things go wrong. You know, simple little things like you, didn't matter what level you're at, you better be winning around 65%, in my mind. You know, you if you're winning more than that, you're probably at the wrong level. And if you're you know, oh, winning great. less than that, you're probably at the wrong level as well. You know, and I've heard that number being thrown around plenty of times between 60 and 70%. Maybe 70 is too high. So, I mean, how difficult can it be? I've got to look at the look at the win ratio. I'm trying to get between eighty and one hundred and ten singles matches a year, throwing a couple of double matches. I've got to make sure I've got some weapons. I've got to make sure that I'm taking care of my body so that uh, you know, there's the the injury prevention's great. I mean, it's not that difficult to make a top hundred player.
0: There'll be people listening that'll be going, "Oh, come on, come on, Stan, come on, Stan." And 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 I think, you know, ult- ultimately, what what people that are listening that are thinking that they don't have your passion, and I think that's the. I want you in my corner. If I'm trying to be a player, listening to you, I want you in my corner. I, you know, I, even if I didn't know you at all, Stan, li- you know, listening to you. So so how many how many coaches, <laughs> how many coaches have that? You know, because. Because the cut, and again, this is listened to now in one hundred and twenty-five countries. This podcast, and I know it's listened to by a lot of coaches. But how many coaches have you met in your time that have wanted to work or develop players into the top hundred in the world? But then, how many coaches have you met that are willing to do what it takes to develop coaches into being top hundred player in the world?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's the you could you know I'll tell you a funny story that. I am now coaching against a lot of the guys that I, my players were playing against. And they'll see me on the road. And they're like, holy hell, you're still out here? <laughs> He's like, haven't you had enough? I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I mean, my life's good. My wife, we, we have a great life. Um, this is what I do. And as long as my body is going to enable me to do that, I'll, this is what I'm going to keep doing. But the passion, yeah, I mean, I mean we live vicariously through them you know every point every forehand they miss we miss every point they win or lose we, we win or lose the thing that i'm better at now way better at now because i think i was a little bit volatile when i was younger is that i'm very clear in what i'm looking for from the player so i i detach the emotional part i still live the the match like the excitement the ups and downs the, the nerves but I don't get emotional about the match because I know exactly what I'm looking for. Like I'm on the forehand, on the backhand, on the identity, on the strategy, on the body language, on the hydration. So when the kid comes off the court or the player, I know, first of all, I always let them speak. I never speak first. Unless I, unless I can see they're in a really bad way, that I know I have to pick them up pretty quickly. I let them speak. And most of the times, after I've been with a kid for a while, I say a kid, but a lot of the guys are 21, 22. They actually give me all the answers that I've seen. There's not a lot to discuss. So our I, I, I talks are five minutes and, and then boom, boom, you know, get on with it. But if they don't maybe pick up on the things, our talks are still very short because I don't have to hum and ho, I don't have to come up with any BS. I'm very specific about what, what are we trying to accomplish and did you do it or did you not do it and where, did, where specifically did it go wrong? And I think when you're very, very specific about these things, it's very easy to fix things. When, when you're not specific, it's a disaster to try to fix things. So my guy will come off and I'll notice like just one shot, you know, maybe it's a running forehand where the guy is not putting the, the a defensive ball to a guy's weakness and he's trying to play a stupid shot or a glory shot and it might not cost him a match, but I'll go and work on that for 10 minutes afterwards. And the next day he'll pretty much do it. You're like, okay, running forehand, this goes, you know, depending on where I am in the court, what type of ball I'm trying to deliver. He's got a clear idea. He might still screw it up. There's a good chance he will still screw it up. He has a very, very clear idea. So I think, I think making players, honestly, it is easy when you've got a very clear idea. And when you look at the player and you know, okay, the player is going to play like this and you're always going to make adjustments. I mean, you might have a vision for how a player is going to play, but then six months down the road, you're like, he mm, doesn't have the ability to do some of the things I saw, thought he was going to do, but he does have other abilities. So, you know, we take a bit of a tangent on that. But uh, I, I, I tell my guys all the time, and I think this is where I think coaching is actually very overrated, is that you don't have to be good at everything. You've just got to be good at something. And if you look at... I mean, you look, Dan Evans, and I, and I love Dan Evans to death. When Dan made his run into the top 100, he still wasn't really coming over the backhand that much. I mean, I remember watching him in Sydney when he had that very the first run in, uh, when he was there yeah. with Hiltz. And he started coming over the backhand a little bit more there because you have to now. You have to. But still, if you look at how he beats Novak on clay, what did he beat him with? Coming over the backhand? Nope. It was the yeah. slice, slice backhand. Put yeah. in the ball, three-quarter court in a very uncomfortable position for Novak to come forward in. And then, of course, Dan's forehand's good. He's, he reads the game ridiculously well. So is, is Dan – is he going to come over a topspin backhand return on breakpoint against Felicia Ana Lopez? No chance. He's standing up close. He's going to chip it at the feet, and then he's going to pass. This is what he's going to do. So is he good at everything? No, but he's damn good at something. Yep. And this is where I think coaches go very wrong as they try to like make – People really good at everything, but they don't get, you know, very very good at something simple. And that's what that's have, what
0: happened with Stan. Just that's what happened with Lee Childs. Yeah. yeah, They tried uh, to uh, turn uh, him into a
1: baseliner and he's uh, not gr- going to be there.
0: I mean, he 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 just absolutely wellied the ball. Yeah, <laughs> serve and forehand. Yeah, his backhand he was okay at chipping it, but couldn't hit over it, and yeah and they and look and if we take that story i think it's a great example because he was beating andy Roddick. you well, know he chopping was him up yeah. he was 17 he was already 350 in the world atp he beat Sargi sol who was what 65 in the world at the time when he was 17 in uh, atp tour event in brighton mm-hmm. you know he was he was doing it with his strengths and then they spent 6 12 months working on the weaknesses on a clay court for 12 months and he he lost his, he he lost his X factor a little bit. So um, I I, I completely get what you're saying. And I think there's a lot of, lot of relatable stories on that as well. Who's the, who's the best player you've worked with or been around and, and and known very well who hasn't made it.
1: I mean, I can tell you that there are a couple like Jameer Jenkins. Oh my God what this guy could do is scary. Uh, and I mean, he, he's ranking moved up quick. I mean, I, uh the, he, when I was with him, he beat Kock and Arcus in the, I think the semis of a challenger. And uh, it's quite funny because Kock and Arcus, you know, big forehand and, and, and one of Cox's biggest forehands is inside out, but he loves his cross court forehand and he hates losing his cross court forehand rally. And, when you're playing Jameer Jenkins is faster than you're saying, Bolt, you are not going to win that four-hand cross-court money. And he would not get out of it. And he lost it over and over and over. And Finansi's and, and coach is uh, Todd Langman, also a good mate of mine. And we're sitting watching it together. And he's like, he's like I wonder if at some stage he's going to realise <laughs> that Jameer is one of the fastest guys out there and he's losing 100% of these exchanges. He's like, nope, he's gonna keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny because he lost, but and then I remember Jameer that year, he uh, played Aussie Open. I think I can't remember who he beat the first round. Uh, actually he played Chechenada and uh, beat him and I was on a hard course. is obviously not a great hardcore player, very good clay holder. And then anyway, lost last round uh, to a German guy. Uh, forgot there, but but basically didn't play well. But I felt if he qualified there for that that Aussie Open and he wins a round or two, uh, and, and gets some self belief, this guy could have been good, like really really good. And there's there's a couple of others, and then you know even a guy like Noah Rubin, you know was, uh, Noah, you know qualified at the the Aussie, beat beyond Fratangelo, who I coached for four years. And then played Federer second round on Labor lost the first, I think, 6 4. Um, and I think the, the second was a little easier. And then the third was 5 2 up and then it had some chances. I think he had some set points. That's the year Fed didn't look like he was going to win it and actually did win it. And Noah, you know, you could say, well, okay, smaller guy, not a lot of weapons and stuff like that. But I actually had him playing like big boy tennis, yeah. serving big, dominating with a forehand, you know. The thing about Noah, he was comfortable on that court. Like, yes, it, you know, obviously, I never played, and God knows, I never played on a stadium like that. And you would think, well, that could be a little bit intimidating. He lapped it up; he loved it. So he was born for that stuff. Um, I mean, he. I remember him coming off, and he goes, "Man, everything felt so slow out there. I felt like I had all the time in the world." I'm like, "Really?" I guess Roger, <laughs> it's a big yeah. ball. But I think Noah could have been pretty good as well.
0: And, and in your experience of, of these people that aren't making it, what, or, or, or if you were to give kind of two or three non-negotiables of things that you need to have the guys that have made their way through and the guys that haven't, what would, what would they be?
1: You know, I think scheduling is a big thing. Uh, I, I've seen players make, be made or broken by scheduling as simple as that. You, you're not choosing uh, the right surfaces, the right times, when to peak per se. So I think scheduling gets in the way a lot. I think, uh, well, I mean, the biggest one, and, and this is where I'm a, I'll am probably get crucified, but you know, I'm pretty much known for being not very, um, let me choose my words wisely here, not very accommodating of, of parent and parental involvement. To put it lightly, I completely appreciate the parents. I completely respect that they are ones that are paying the bills and these things, but it's the one voice thing. It's the one voice. If you have more than one voice in your head, you have almost no shot at doing this because it gets clouded quickly. Um, I need to be that voice as simple as that. If a parent wants to come through me on that, to be a part of that, I completely welcome it but I can't control what's being said at home. And so many times what's being said at home is totally contradictory to, to the voice that I am. So that for me is a non-negotiable. If I'm going to do it, and, and I, I've i axed relationships really quickly. And I mean, with, with guys that are good, like if I feel that I'm not in control and it's not even a control thing, it's just like, if I'm going to be held accountable for your son's progress and you are paying me, I'm not cheap, you're, gonna, you're paying me decent money, then I want to be, Accountable, but I can't be accountable if there's multiple voices in the head. So I think that's the primary one, because with the, with the multiple voices, you're going to have multiple identities. You're going to have multiple state of minds. And a, a real simple uh, topic of conversation is how you look at things, language. Like I hate when parents or people use the words choke. I never use the word choke, never, because that becomes the problem. You know, I'm not a sports psychologist by any stretch of the imagination, but I am through experience. And I've definitely said the wrong things plenty of times in my life, but I've now learned how to say, get the message through without making anything a big deal. And I know I one of the biggest things that I see parents going wrong is scenario crafting. What is that? My own little terminology is like, oh, you always do this. When, you, when you're sitting in a breakup, you always lose serve the next game. I'm like, mm. who's creating this problem exactly? Are you labeling.
0: creating
1: it? Yeah. La- labeling, very good term. Use that as well. Scenario and labeling drives me nuts. Like I would never do it. I see it happening. I see the trends happening. But to me, it's like there's another person on the other side of the court, which means that somebody else is going to have some influence on what actually happens after you're a break up and a set up and whatever it is. So you don't have full say on that yet. There's a labeling, there's a scenario that's And this becomes a problem with the kids. And you can see them sort of thinking about this stuff. And with the way I coach my guys, that'll never ever happen, never ever happen. And I'll coach them around it. I use situations a lot with my guys. Like they'll be in a situation and they'll lose and they didn't handle it well and they'll go into maybe something, the sorry, a mental or the physical side of it. And I'm like, no, mate, it's situational. So you didn't handle this situation great. I said, how does a guy like Novak Djokovic, why is he so good in every situation? Well, it's pretty damn simple. He's been in that situation multiple times. I can promise you that he wouldn't be good at that situation if he wasn't in that situation. And I can also promise you that he has failed in that situation multiple times. So don't look at it as failure, just like, okay, in this situation, in this very situation, I have to get better at it. And I'm going to tick this one off and go, okay, good. Let's add that to like, I've been in that situation one more time. Now that doesn't mean the next time you're in that situation, You'll come out of it flying colors. You might fail again. It doesn't matter. You put yourself in situations enough, you actually become good at handling the situation. And this is where I think tennis is so simple. You know, you, People are going to dissect this and go, oh, man, you handled this badly. You could have done this, could have done that, da-da-da-da-da. You start psycho-evaluating the player. You start discussing the player's technique, what broke down the language that you use with players can completely make or break them. So this is why the one voice thing, it has to, my, it has to be my voice, because eventually, and, and you can tell me what, what your thoughts are on this, but a player doesn't make it at the end of the day because they had a vision when they were 8, 9, 10 years old. Yes, they had heroes. They maybe had uh, grand visions of being a pro per se, but it was somebody else's vision that became their vision. It was somebody yeah. else's voice that became that voice. Now, in a lot of times, that is apparent, but in the woman's side of it. and the men's side of it, doesn't happen that much. But it, it does. There are some, you know, sometimes that happens. And, yeah, you know, this voice thing is like, if you look at a guy like, you know, Roger, and you take Peter Carter, I mean, you can't tell me that every single day Roger steps on the tennis court, there's not a big part of Peter Carter's voice in his head. You can't tell me that.
0: Yeah. So those two things of scheduling, non-negotiable, one voice, non-negotiable. Yeah. At what age would you would you put an age on that? I know you're doing most of your work with 16 plus players. Yeah. Would you yeah. have an opinion on that? Those two things starting at a, at a younger age than 16.
1: The minute I start with you, it doesn't matter what age you are. Those are the things that kick in. It doesn't okay. matter what And once again, is like, I have plenty of good working relationships with the parents, but I've also had plenty that haven't worked out and it's not personal. I'm just like, listen, is that the language you use with your kid. And then the classic I hear all the time is like, Oh, well, we never talk tennis at home or we don't really talk about it. But when the kid shows up at the court the next day and he's had a bad practice, did you know a parent has seen, you know, there's been tennis talk, you know it. So, you know, it's, it's like, If you're going to pay me, let me do my job. And my job is just let me be the voice. Now, I'm very prepared to maybe educate the wrong word, but to enlighten you as to what language I do use with the players. And if you want to now reinforce that language with a player, I completely welcome that. But I'm not interested in your own interpretation of that. Now, I know it's your son or your daughter, and you know your son or your daughter better than you that I will ever know them, and that's 100 percent sure. But what I can promise you I know better than you is the journey. That, that I can promise you. Yeah. You know, I've been I've been through this journey now, oh God, I mean, with how many players and for how many years. And I've made mistakes. God knows, Jesus. plenty of mistakes are things I would go and do differently, you know, a, a second run around. And I often tell parents this, and I'll often tell my players is that I might not be the best coach in the world, come boils back down to the whole um, coaching is overrated, but I have a ton of stories to tell you, a ton of stories. Like, I mean, I can give you scenarios for almost every single person that's become a player when they were 16 years, 18 years, 20 years, you know, whatever, because I've seen it. I've seen most of these players come through And I draw from that. I mean, I use that. I'm always using that experience of my guys. I'm like, listen, this player at this stage was at this level. He did this. He did that. I mean, giving somebody a good forehand, a serve, a backhand, teaching them to to trust themselves, that's huge. I mean, with me, the trust factor is massive. To trust your your coach, trust yourself, trust the process. The coaching, honestly, is overrated. And that's why, again, I come back to say is like, I don't think it's that difficult to make a top 100 player. I've been able to travel this journey and that's why I i know what I'm looking for. I'm very confident in what I'm looking for. So when I get somebody that I'm low, okay, well, this, this is not going to happen for this player. I'm very honest. I'm like, listen, this is where you're at. This is probably a best case scenario for you. However, prove me wrong. Uh, who knows what you can do? Because we come back to the situation thing again is like, you don't know what somebody can do until you put them in a situation. You, you just don't know. And you'll be looking, look at if you know, they run here the Aussie Open. Look, I mean, come on. You don't know what somebody can do, but put them in a situation and somehow they find something within themselves that they're like, wow, I actually can't do this.
0: Really good, Stan. I try to ask the questions that I think the listeners might be thinking. And, you've said a couple of times you're not cheap. You know, you, you've also had extensive experience of working for a governing, governing body of the USTA, which I'd like to get to right. in, 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 in a minute. If I share something that Faku Lagonez, Cameron Norris coach said on the podcast, he said that yeah. he doesn't think that anybody doesn't make it for financial reasons. He said, that's bullshit. He said, that's an excuse. He said, it might take you a bit longer if you don't have the finance. So so how, how do you simplify the journey when you can't afford a coach to be on the road and yeah. you don't have a federation's backing to have yeah. the coaches on the road? How, how, how for those players out there, someone that's sitting at 500, 600 in the world, Whatever it might be, and they're thinking shit, I'm not sure. They've they're like you, they've got that 250 bucks in their pocket. Mm. They're they're planning their next trip, but they they're doing it completely on their own. How does that person simplify the journey through through the ranks? And and I guess how do you go against that compared to what you're saying? How how simple it would be to be a top hundred player if you've got someone in your corner all the time.
1: Mm. Well, you're gonna to have to have a coach. And that coach, I mean, you you're almost never going to make it without a coach. Now, you know, there's there's multiple scenarios um, of guys helping players really for very little money until they make it. And then it's payback time. You know, sometimes, you know, you take the soccer thing. I don't know what happened there, but, you know, that guy apparently worked for three years. I don't know the ins and outs. You know, I just I just follow the story. Um, so I, I would agree with that. If you really want to do this, Victor Estrella, that's a perfect example. Yeah. You know, he was coaching. Let's take Chris O'Connell not run at the Aussie Open. I met Chris when he was 17 years old down in a Challenger in Burnie, Australia, and he actually played Mitchell Kruger, I was coaching at the time. He beat Mitchell. Yeah, he's a decent player, uh, relatively talented, but no money, none. And then he got injured multiple times. And uh, do you know what he was doing? I don't know if you read, read his story. And of course, Marinko Matosovic, who I coached, uh, Marinko coaches him now. And Marinko came from nothing. There's another classic example. I mean, he basically came from nothing. He basically just wanted to make it. Well, when I was coaching, when helping Marinko, I was charging him, Jesus, it was nothing. It was bare minimum because uh, Mark Kermich, the Aussie player, was his real, was his full-time coach. And basically he said, listen, can, can you help Mick Lindahl and, and Marinko for a couple of weeks before the French and then after after the Wimbledon, but they really don't have any money. Can you do it for 500 bucks a week? And I'm like, yeah, of course, no problem. Well, there were two reasons I did it. Number one, because I liked them. Uh, and number two, because I had some younger guys I could use as hitting partners. And who is that going kind to of benefit? Big time, my younger guys. So yeah, for me, when I say I'm expensive, there's plenty of times I've worked for free. I've, I've, yeah. I haven't charged people and I'll help, you know? And I still do that. And I still help people today. If you really can't do it, I'll help you out. But you've really got to prove to me, you know, like yeah. both parents need to be working. You know, I can't say, oh, we don't have the money, but then, you know, parents are staying in the risk. Column. Well, then I'm not interested. You know, I can see if you're struggling, you're not struggling. So I still help people. But you take take Chris O'Connell, he scrubbed boats for two years. He scrubbed the barnacles of boats. And it was during COVID as well. And you look at the run he had now. They're awesome. You know? So yeah, it if you incredible. really want to do this, you can do that. Um, it's it's very tough to say to guys, go and get a job, and you got to try to play at the same time. But if, hey, if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. But the thing that you cannot do without – is the coach. You can go and find the money all your time because it is impossible to self-reflect. I see guys out there in the Futures Tour and they're using GoPros and they're watching their matches afterwards. It makes no difference. Yeah, you see it from the outside, but what are you really looking for? Do you really know what you're looking for? And a lot of times I'll have guys, because I love talking tennis as do you. I'll be at a tournament and the guy that'll come to me and he goes, yeah, you know, your player beat me. And what do you think, you know? And I'll sit down with him and I'll, have a conversation for like hours and they'll walk away and they're like oh Jesus I'm so far off or I'm like I didn't see I didn't see any of that but I said listen once again coaching's overrated it doesn't mean I'm right it's the way I see it, it doesn't mean it's right but I think if you can get these things organized you could be a pretty good player.
0: And to prove that point as well Stan 2012 Flushing Meadows I had a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And we were talking around Josh Ward-Hibbert. Sure, I gotta remember that. I remember that Josh. Josh, Josh was, people talked about Josh being a great server. And you didn't directly say this about Josh, but I think indirectly you were, you were sending a message to me, which was the right message, is that you told me it really gets on your nerves when people talk about people being great servers because they serve hard you know, yeah. and, and until you're able to hit spot after spot after yeah. spot with your eyes closed, you are not a great server. Yeah. And 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 on the back of that conversation, Stan, I actually, over the next six to nine months, I actually took the stats of Josh because it, I guess at that at that time he he was he'd served the fastest ever serve at wimbledon for a junior and it was all this kind of yeah, yeah. noise but he can't return dan he can't return that's what everyone was what was telling me so i thought i'm going to get a little bit of something behind this and over the next 6 9 months he he held serve 72% of his service games and he broke serve 23 hmm. now i call it the 105% rule Basically, to be winning at any level, you've got to be winning 105% of your serve and return games. Mm -hmm. You know, so John Isner is 96-hold, 9-break. Dan Mm -hmm. Evans is about 77-hold, 28-break. Now, Josh Ward-Hibbert, for the type of player he was, 23% breaks was good. You know, he was, he was, it didn't look pretty, didn't look pretty, but he used his athletic ability to, to get the ball in court and hustle. But the bottom line is, he wasn't holding serve well enough. You know, yeah. and and yes, he could serve hard, um, and that's something that I've I've taken through. And you know, I always appreciate those conversations that we had, and I, I hope that I'll have many more with you over the years, Stan. But I, but I think again, for coaches, too many coaches and players go to these events and they don't open up and have these conversations mm-hmm. because this is these this is the place where we're all learning all the time. You mm-hmm. know, and that's been the beauty. Of this podcast for me as well, um, so I, I never got to thank you for that conversation. But thank you for that conversation almost ten years ago now. That's scary.
1: That's right. I remember that. Well, the thing is, nobody sees it all. I think if you ever come across a coach that, and a lot of guys you come across that they, like, <laughs> they come across that they know it all. I love one of the reasons I took the USDA job was because I felt I'd flatlined. I completely stopped learning. Uh, I had done my own thing for a long time. And it was the best decision of my life to go and work for the USDA for those eight years. I grew exponentially. Like the way I saw the game, the, the, it just having coaches around you talking tennis all the time. And now I'm back working for myself for the the last three, four years. And I'm not making the same mistake because what I'm doing now is talking more tennis with other coaches and I'll bring in guys to watch my players. Like I'm big into tapping into other coaches. Uh, A lot of times I'll, you know, what, what I do with my system is that I, um, I always have three to four players. In other words, I'm not dependent on, a, on, on, on an individual financially, on one individual. Absolutely. So therefore, if the parents don't play along, you can leave. If for some reason the, the player and I are starting to, you know, maybe we're not getting the best out of each other. I don't have to try to keep you for the financial reasons. I don't need it. I have three or four guys. I have always had three or four guys and I'm and it's like it's like if one goes, there's somebody waiting to come in. And I'm not that's not arrogant, it's not an arrogant outlook. It's the benefit is that I always have guys to practice against. We always have three or four guys, they are a team. You are only as good as the people around you. You know, you're only the, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So when we're traveling as a team and one guy loses. And then a, a buddy of yours that you normally beat goes and chops up a really good player. Like, hang on now, I've drummed this guy in practice or I, I beat him regularly and he's just beaten this guy that I lost to. There's big reward in that. But the system works well because I'm never dependent on your money and yep. the players feel that. And then the massive advantage is like when you're traveling, you got four guys splitting expenses. This becomes huge. And, and you know you, you grew up you know, with, other, with the other Brits Maybe you have a bad day and you come and your body's a little sore and you've got a bit of a crappy attitude, and the other guys will get on your case. Uh whereas if you just one-on-one with a coach, yeah, you kind of kind of work through it, you know. Like, no, no, the other guys are not gonna let that happen. So uh, you know, many many, uh benefits of that.
0: No, absolutely. And what the one thing that jumps in my head there though, Stan is what happens, and, and obviously you've seen this over the years, I think we both have, that one player starts to spike into different levels, you know, uh, which, which is, which is naturally going to happen. You know, how, how, how do you manage, manage the ups and downs of that? Because tennis is never perfect. You know, Mm. everyone's not going to stay at the same ranking. Everyone's not going to play the same tournaments. People start to feel a bit jealous that maybe you're giving a bit more time to, to X, Y, or Z. Mm. Um, You know, how, 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 or what advice would you give coaches when they, when that starts to happen?
1: Just be, be fair, be fair. I mean, I give you this year. Uh, I had two guys in Wimbledon juniors, and I had one guy that was playing a futures in Florida. I mean, where would I rather be? You know, I mean, I mean that's not even true. I mean, it's not like where would I rather be? I wherever I am, I am. I'm happy. I could be yeah. in a local park, and I'd be happy. But it is a grand slam. You know, that would be and you're there with two young guys, but I was super happy. My guy started playing really well, beating a guy 280 like on clay. And he's not really a clay court player, so I 100% want to be there. But this tournament got dragged out with rain. It was dragged out, dragged out, dragged out to where the quarters was being played on the Saturday. I couldn't even get to in time to watch my guys play Monday. What did I do? Get on a plane and go to Wimbledon? Or I finish it out? I finish it out with my guy that's playing in the futures. When you make good decisions and fair decisions, the players feel it. It's very simple as that. Yes. I, I make sure I spend equal time with the guys. I don't care if you're the higher ranked player. For the most part, I follow the, 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 the schedule is based around the higher ranked player. But if somebody needs to go somewhere else and the higher ranked player is really confident, I mean I've had my highest ranked player go on, on the road, and I was supposed to go with him. And he's like, I'm confident, bro. I don't need you to come this week. I'm like, awesome, I'll go with I'll go with somebody else. You know, so it's just communication. Uh, the guys know like five, six weeks in advance, where I'm gonna possibly go? Yeah, things change, but just be fair
0: my my last topic because and we've we've touched on it, but i i it wouldn't feel right not to discuss this with you. is a federation. you were at the USDA mm. for a few years Um, mm. you're you're South African, but you're embedded in in american tennis you know you're you know you've been around the american tennis now for for a long time firstly how was your time at the usta
1: phenomenal phenomenal absolutely loved it as i said i grew um exponentially working with all these guys being around a guy like jose hagueris or jay burger patrick Macaro. and then have, having access to guys i didn't have access to before like spending time with Jim Courier or going to Vegas and spending time with Andre Agassi. I mean, come on. <laughs> so I wasn't going to get those opportunities. So it created a world of opportunity for me. My boss, who was Jay Berger, was the greatest guy uh, to work for. I took the job in the same year that Roddy quit. It was 2012. And actually, I provided warm-up guys for Roddick for that, all his warm-up matches. And he goes, man, it's pretty cool that you're going to work for them, but I think you're going to last maximum eight weeks and you'll be fired <laughs> so i lost eight years you know so i beat that but the reason i lost in eight years is because they because of jay and my bosses and they they didn't mind an argument you could argue all you want i mean they were many times i would butt heads but um yeah jay Bug was uh, he was amazing like i remember one year uh they were handing out wild cards for doubles at the u.s open and I won't get into the players' names, but they didn't give the, one of my guys a doubles wildcard, and he'd be promised one, you know. And I'm like, don't promise guys stuff and then don't do it. And they reversed the decision, and I was on a practice court, <laughs> and Jay came walking up to me, and I was pissed, really pissed, because I'm gonna fight for my players. I don't care if I lose my job. I'm gonna fight for you. And he came up to me and he started talking to me, and I, and I you know, I, did, I didn't treat him well. And I remember my my 88, 88 year old mom. She, she comes to a lot of the stands with me. She was watching from a distance. And I basically just brushed him off. I'm like, listen, I gotta go. I've got another practice over here. And I like this, you know, doing this to him. <laughs> and I remember walking away, and my mom goes, like, well, I'm pretty pretty, pretty sure you're gonna get fired after that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then th- we walk him back to the hotel that night, and all the coaches stay in the Hyatt. And I said to my mom, because my mom's this busybody wants to talk to everybody. I'm like, mom do not stop and look at anybody in the lobby because Jay will be there and I do not want to talk to him. It's like, you just head forward to the elevator and we're up the steps. Of course, nope, she can't do this. She walks in there and Jay is there and he's like, he called me, he called me Stanley. He's like, hey, Stanley, Stanley. He wants to talk and I'm just ignoring him. And my mom's like, hi, Jay. And <laughs> <It's like, laughs> like, I told you that's not, she didn't do that. So he comes across, he's like, let's talk. I'm like, no, I, I don't know. I don't want. I'm so pissed. I don't want to talk to you. And then my mom's again like, You're definitely getting fired. So that night we have a dinner and it's a, it's a coach's dinner. And there's like two seats open in the corner. And I go and position myself like the furthest away I can from Jay. What does he do? Gets up from where he's sitting and comes and forces himself in the only damn seat that's available. And he goes, Now you can't get away. <laughs> You know, and then and then Air yeah. Players yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I think the thing is that he knew with me. I mean, I was gonna make some bad decisions, sure, but he knew that I had the players back yeah. and I was gonna do whatever it took. When I first started the USDA, they had no program. I mean, pretty much no program. They had two coaches in the pro department. There was uh Tom Gallickson, who you've had on, was legendary, and David Nankin. By the time we'd left, we had twelve coaches in the pro section. We completely revived, like turned that thing around. I remember being in Australia with Fretan, like Bradley Clon. You know, he was one of my favorite guys, and that was a great success story. Jameer Jenkins, Mitchell Kruger, and um, and Fratangelo. and I'd had four of them, and I'm looking, and the Aussies are one on one, and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> it's going to change. I brought in Robbie Janapri. I brought in Mike Russell. I got in. I brought Roddy and Fish to help. You know, every now and then, I brought Brian Baker in. I'm like, this has got to change. How are we like the biggest federation, and we do not tap into any of our ex players. None of our ex players. Jim Currier would do some work, and we tap into that. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There is an intellectual value to this that we are not tapping into. So we changed all that thing. We got a lot of coaches, and Craig Boynton came and worked and. And then we started bringing all the ex-American players in. And it changed things. And quite frankly, the era of Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, and uh, Jared Donaldson before we got injured, and that era came out of that system. I don't give a damn what anybody says. I know it. I lived through it. I saw it happening. The coaches grinded. They got the, the kids on the road. They did the 25, the 30 weeks a year. And those kids came out of that system. Um, so, no, the USDA experience was a phenomenal one. I don't know what's going on there now. The program's completely disbanded, doesn't exist um, for whatever reason. I don't know what it is, but um, the federation plays an integral part in developing of American players from a financial and infrastructure point, futures, the challenges, pretty much non-existent right now.
0: That could be a podcast in itself. If I ask another question, I'm not going to get the quick fire round in because I don't have any more time. We have to do another podcast, Stan. I've loved listening to you. There's so many topics, subjects I'd love to delve into even more. So thank you for, for your honesty, your insights. But are you ready? Quick fire round. What does control the controllables mean to you?
1: Very simple. I can I can break that up into about five different areas. Control the control is, is you, you want to be a good player. You've got to be a great athlete. Make yourself a great, great athlete. You've got to have two weapons. Make those two weapons. You've got to have ridiculous defense. Get good at defense. You have to be great out of the corners. The best players in the world are not going to hit you off the court, but you put them in the corner, they are phenomenal out of the corner. you got to have ball speed. That's not a, it's a non-negotiable. The forehand ball speed for the most part, 75 miles an hour. The backhand's around 71. You don't have to serve at 140. If you can serve at 120 and hit your spots, that's all you need. Those are the controllables. If you have those aspects of tennis together, becoming a top 100 player is not very difficult as long as you believe in yourself and the coach around you believes in yourself. So those are things you can control, 100% control. And that's the way I would interpret that.
0: Serve or return.
1: Definitely serve for me. It's just like the serve plus one, uh, the mentality. You know, people say in a tie break, they'd rather be a returner than a server, possibly. Yeah, definitely serve. Forehand
0: or backhand?
1: Forehand, any day of the week.
0: Clay courts or hard courts?
1: Uh, I think the clay court game is, is going away. Um, the side of play on play is going away. Guys are playing a little bit more linear. It's about speed. You know, look at Novak winning a French. I think clay is a great developmental tool. Um, you look at Alcarez coming through, obviously doing very well under Ferrero. Uh, I don't know how much time they spend on clay. I'd assume it's a fair amount, but he's a pretty damn good hardcore player. So I'm pretty sure they're spending a fair amount of time on hard. So I think from developmental purpose, clay is massive. If I had to develop a kid from 12 or 13 years old, I'd have them on the clay in the morning and the hard in the afternoon. Obviously, this is not pre-tournament. This is just like in a developmental stage. Um, because this game is about time and the clay courts don't allow you to necessarily, it teaches you things like resilience, shot tolerance, you know, patterns, a movement, the sliding, but the clay, a lot of times does not teach you um, some of the, uh, the, 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 the whole aspect of the time aspect of, because tennis is about time. How do I absorb time? How do I take time? And the clay, I don't think always teaches you that stuff. But I mean, you know, there are are benefits to both. If I had to choose just one, it would be hardcore.
0: Indoors or outdoors?
1: Oh, outdoors. I hate indoors.
0: Who's going to be the winner of the Men's Australian Open 2022?
1: I'm going to go with mid.
0: And the women's?
1: Ash she's looking pretty good.
0: Medical medical timeout or not?
1: Yeah, I think you need it. I don't think bathroom breaks. There's a difference between medical timeout and bathroom breaks. And, then, and I think for the cramping, I don't think you should be allowed it. You know, and guys are getting away with that. So yeah, the medical timeouts, but I think it should also only be, um, you know, and I think I, I'm not actually in this department. I suck with regards to my knowledge of the rules, but I, there shouldn't be more than two. You know, the initial consultation, then one, then maybe a follow up, and then after that, I'm sorry, no more. But I think that's the way it is. I'm not sure. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Uh, Davis Cup.
0: That your favorite Grand Slam?
1: So everybody gets on me for this, but it's the Aussie Open. I love the, the crowd down there. Uh, Craig Tidy does a phenomenal job of making the players feel good. Always going extra lengths, you know, whether it be like 10 or three restrings or like five restrings for the juniors. It doesn't matter. They feel important. You know, it's like a lot of times we got into the prize money debate where uh, Craig would pay more in Aussie dollars. Uh, or Sorry, the package. When you package, like his, his prize money would be more uh, but when you put his package together, it actually equated the same as the US Open. This is what I was told when I was working for the USDA. But now you look at, I mean, he's been a leader in, 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 in uh, increasing price money. I think the first round prize money this year is 107,000 Aussie dollars. Is that right? Like 70,000 US. I don't know if that's right, but that somebody said something like that, which is the way it should be. I mean, you can't be a top 100 player and not making money, you know, being a grandstand slam player. So, I think Craig's been the leader. He's made that facility ridiculous. Every time you go down, there's a new indoor court or a new show court, and you feel special there. So definitely uh, my favorite. You want to go next favorite?
0: No, because you don't have much time. (laughs) And who? My last question: Who should be our next guest on Control the Controllables? Have you had uh, have you
1: had Grosjean on?
0: No, I would love Grosjean on.
1: Yeah. Pretty, pretty cool guy. Very charismatic. I'll tell you a guy that I think is a damn good coach, but you've probably had him on is Liam Smith. I think he's done a great job.
0: I haven't. I haven't had Liam on.
1: Okay. You should get on when he's very, very good. Another guy's really, really good coach, Grant Doyle. Um, I don't know if you've had Grant, but he's also one of my favorite coaches. So those, those would be those those three.
0: I'll be in touch for all three. See, see if you've all got the see what right. you see what your, your hookups like, Stan. And my last, 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 last question: I have Marty Fish coming on yeah. later this later this week. Give me one question to ask Marty.
1: <laughs> it, it could be a <laughs> question. It probably didn't actually. We'll stay away from that. The question he doesn't want to answer. Um, me he some done, He's done so well. No, this is what well, I mean. It's a bit really, a bit of a naughty one there. <laughs> so I'm to stay away from that one. That would put him on a spot. I don't know how you would get to this, but I'm very big on confidence and, and, and teaching, putting confidence in my player. And I uh, and I remember Marty said to me the one day, um, we were talking about he was gonna play somebody. And I'm like, the guy sucks, man. You play you play him, and I don't mean it condescendingly, but I'm like, he sucks. This is the way you play him. Boom, 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 boom. And then he said to me after, he's like, so just to get this right, is it It seems like everybody we play sucks. Is that right? I'm like, yeah, that's right. He goes, okay, good. Now that I know that, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if, if that's a question for him, but. Uh,
0: no, that will be awesome. And I need to, uh, I now need to work on my my chatting, my chat host skills to see if I can bring this through with, with Marty on, on Wednesday. So, uh, but Stan, you get to the courts, uh, but not before I get to say a massive, massive thank you for giving you, giving your time up. I loved that conversation and I'll be listening back. I even found myself making notes as we were going. And I think for any coaches out there, that it's a real note takers episode because someone who's been there is living it is has lived it for many years and remains to be living it well done on your passion that you still have firing and and good luck with your guys they're very lucky to have you in your in their corner
1: thank you dan i really appreciate it
0: and it's it's great to have vicky beside me again your your first episode of 2022 i believe
2: My first one, and I am happy because that was chock full of stories and we ended 2021 and I was talking about how I love my, my favorite episodes are always ones of stories but Stanis started the year off awesome I thought that was brilliant but not only stories so much advice in there so much and um, I know that was a long episode um, but we wanted to keep it all in because there was just uh, so many gems in there
0: how many notepads did you go through the obsessive tennis parent over there um, I'm sure you were scribbling away
2: <laughs> even at the last bit in the uh, how would you define control the controllables and then he just dropped all these amazing tips. I was like, good defense, be good at the corners. <laughs> it was brilliant. Be yeah. a good
0: athlete, two great weapons and make sure that you're good in defense. You know, they're, they're stored in my brain as I'm <laughs> sure that they're stored in many of your brains as well because he, he kept saying it, didn't he? He kept saying it's, it's, it's easy. It's not hard to 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 produce top hundred players in the world, and in our sport we look at that as the holy grail. So, what do you reckon? Do you reckon you could try your hand at producing a a top hundred player in the world now that you you have all of this amazing advice?
2: Well, I think we should send over Matthew, our eleven year old, and see test that theory if is. <laughs>
0: I don't think he would last 2 minutes you know with that South African <laughs> rugby background you know but I think I think on that the the confidence that he exudes on that is obviously picked up by his players as well and and I think we can overcomplicate this sport but it's like anything isn't it it's once you've done something it never seems that hard you know and he's obviously got the advantage of being fair play to him, he's been involved in some amazing tennis journeys, obviously notably Andy Roddick Marty Fish uh, but now he's done it it's like well okay we can we can do that again that can be replicated and, and I love that he had his three non-negotiables as well, you know I think for parents listening and for coaches listening I think those three non-negotiables would be great advice to take on board as well
2: why are you giving me that face? <laughs>
0: well, I want to test you. I want to. I want to. I want to test you. I want to see how how much you've been listening, not just mind numbingly editing. I want to see if you're taking this information on board.
2: Well, like, like I said, I've been writing down notes. So hit me. Come on.
0: What other? What are the three non-negotiables?
2: The three non-negotiables as a parent or for him
0: that he gave. He gave three non-negotiables that to be a to be a tennis player.
2: One
0: voice, was that one? Yeah, he talked about that a lot. And he talked about that in detail. I think that'll be a hard one for some parents to stomach because I think as parents, we think we have all the answers and we want to get involved. Whereas whereas actually, why would you bring someone on board that has so much experience and then start telling them what to do? And I, I think the subtlety that he talked about, the subtlety of language, The subtlety of that consistent language and way that you're talking to your children plays a big, big, big role in how they end up being and how their mindset ends up being. So if you are in this business, you're going along this journey, you've got people around you who you trust. Then, then make sure that that is the voice that your child is hearing a- along this journey, you know. And I think that was something you wouldn't mess with Stan with. And and I think he comes from a position of strength where he's quite quickly going to say adios if if he if it doesn't go the way that he wants it to as well.
2: I loved what he was ta- when he was talking about scenario crafting and the, and how you're talking to your children. I thought that was brilliant advice. Um, okay, number two. Scheduling, I actually wrote down in my many, many notes. um, I've seen players be made or broken by scheduling.
0: Yeah, that's a one that I regret not delving into more. And I think if, if we get Stan on again, that's something I would like to ask him a little bit more about. We do know that scheduling is important, but I would have loved to have known a little bit more detail about what he meant by that. Um, and at what age, what age does that then become important? I know he said at any age that he starts working with, but I guess if you take the Spanish players as an example, they don't really think of their scheduling until a little bit later. Uh, so that's the second one. Now, no looking here. What about the third one?
2: Well, I've got like fifteen down here.
0: <laughs> well there was o- there was only three, but he mentioned, I'll give you a clue. He mentioned the third one as also one of the things in the controller controllables at the end of the episode.
2: Um, I've got all of them written down. So which one do you want? I've got um, make yourself a great athlete. You've got to have great defense. You've got to be good at the corners. You've got to have ball speed. I'm going to go with defense. No, he also he, he also said that I really liked um, find one thing. Oh God, where is it? I've got so many. Um, Sorry, listeners. It's,
0: it's, <laughs> no,
2: no, he no, he no, said no. two weapons. Oh, two weapons! It's the one I didn't mention.
0: Exactly. So, but he said that he said that on a number of occasions, and I actually very fortunate to have have spoken to Stan about this, and he talked to me a lot about developing Roddick. and we we touched on it a little bit in in the episode, but it was like if he's going to be a player, he has to have two amazing weapons. And he has to have an unbelievable serve, not just a hard serve, but a serve that hits spots repeatedly. And then he needs to have a massive forehand. And I think if you take Andy Roddick, he is a great example of someone that has made an incredible career of two super weapons. The serve was out of this world. The forehand was out of this world. I think we all can admit probably the backhand was a little bit shoddy for the level that he was and there you go he's gone he's won grand slams and he's been number one in the world so the two weapons is a big one the mentality around how you develop them one uh, them is also a big one Paul Anacone speaks a lot about that work on the strengths make the strengths super strengths you know get your player thinking about that and I think naturally as coaches and as parents we're always trying to fill the gaps of things that the players can't do but we need to keep filling them with that confidence of what they can do and I I absolutely love that and like I say, he inspired me to be a better coach he inspired me to want to start playing again and having him as my coach so a, a quite brilliant guest
2: He really was and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did I'm sure we'll be discussing it um, the rest of the week and the Australian Open we've been talking about that non-stop some amazing matches this year have you missed Djokovic? to
0: be honest since since the first ball and i genuinely mean this since the first ball's been hit i haven't thought about them i
2: haven't
0: I, and when you and when you think about what a massive massive global story it was leading in doesn't it just show human beings we kind of we kind of crack on with things and we we don't we don't tend to care about some things for for, for too long and and it has I'm with you I think we could talk for another 20 minutes about what an amazing Australian Open it's been it's going to be fascinating the next few days I actually love the Australian Open as well at weekends Australian Open final weekend it, it goes hand in hand with a bit of a lazy family morning uh, watching watching round about 11 o'clock in the morning and it's it's it really is a great event uh wish wish that I was there wish that we were there uh, but maybe maybe next year but we will be picking that up with our amazing panel who I'm bringing together for early next week so we'll be bringing that to you at the end of next week and after that I can give you a couple of names to whet the appetite our number 151 episode. Is going to be Dan Smethurst, who was the coach to Joe Conta. He, he was a top British player for for many years. knows the game very well and is a fantastic guest to have. And you might have noticed I missed out 150. You know we like to we like to stamp our our big events, our one hundred, our one hundred and fiftieth episode with a brilliant guest. And tomorrow I will be in the company of Marty Fish, which is gonna be an incredible experience for myself. Uh, we've been talking now for a few months and I'm really pleased to say that he, I'm going to be bringing him to you, unless something goes wrong in the next in the next 24 hours. <laughs> Don't drink, sir. Yeah, but that will be our 150th guest coming to you in a couple of weeks' time. So another one to look forward to. Please let all of your friends know. Let people in the sport know about this podcast. We love having you as our part of our community, and we look forward to bringing many more guests throughout 2022. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.